Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with what to expect in tomorrow's election in terms of how difficult it is to vote in some states and how long it will take to count the votes in what is expected to be a close election. Joining us is Ari Berman, a senior reporter at Mother Jones covering voting rights and a reporting fellow at the Nation Institute. His latest book is Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America, and we will discuss his article at Mother Jones, Democracy is Hanging by a Thread in Wisconsin, Blame Extreme Voting Maps. Then we'll look further into the electoral landscape ahead of tomorrow's critical midterm elections in which the fate of American democracy is not on the ballot but looms over this most consequential contest, even if it's not on most voters' minds. Joining us is Dr. Michael McDonald, a professor of political science at the University of Florida. He is a principal investigator on the Public Mapping Project, a project to encourage public participation in redistricting, and also is the director of the United States Election Project. His new book is From Pandemic to Insurrection, Voting in the 2020 U.S. Presidential Election. Then finally, with Prigozhin, Putin's cook with the mercenary army, the Wagner Group, who ran a troll farm to help elect Trump, admitting that, quote, we interfered, we are interfering, and will continue to interfere in American elections. We will speak with Scott Horton, a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. We will discuss the important article by Jim Rutenberg in Sunday's New York Times magazine, The Road to War, which makes it clear that Putin's priority in helping Trump was all about Ukraine, and the quid pro quo was, I will help elect you if you help implement my petition plan to annex eastern Ukraine, which was first proposed by a GRU agent, Kalimnik, to Paul Manafort on July the 28th of 2016 and was exactly the same plan recently announced by Putin. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Ari Berman, a senior reporter at Mother Jones covering voting rights and a reporting fellow at the Nation Institute. His latest book is Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. And he has an article at Mother Jones, Democracy is Hanging by a Thread in Wisconsin, Blame Extreme Voting Maps. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ari Berman. Hi, Ian. Good to talk to you again. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, Ari. And Republican... Officials are suing to disqualify mail ballots in, in some key swing states. In Pennsylvania, the state Supreme Court has agreed with the RNC that election officials sh- shouldn't count ballots on which the voter neglected to put the date on the outer envelope. And then in Michigan, they stopped the steal election denier Christina Caramo 
she's running for Republican Secretary of State. She's suing uh, top election officials in Detroit, trying to toss out absentee ballots, not cast in person with an ID, even though that is not the law in that state. And she's only targeting heavily Democratic Detroit, not the entire state. And then in Wisconsin, Republicans won a court ruling that will prevent some mail ballots from being counted when the required witness address is not complete. So these are all these sort of niggling things that they do. You've been f- studying American voting practices. And so why? what is this culture of not wanting people to vote? What is the logic behind that? What impetus is there? What drives that compulsion to find all kinds of little mean ways to deny people their vote in the name That's- of election integrity? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think it's a death by a thousand cuts approach. And I think it's targeting the places where Democrats live. And I think it's targeting the methods that they use to vote. So Republicans are trying to disqualify mail ballots in Pennsylvania because Democrats are more likely to cast mail ballots and also more likely to cast them in places like Philadelphia and in Pittsburgh, where there's more Democratic votes. Uh, In Michigan, they're targeting Detroit because that's where the highest number of black voters and Democrats uh, in Michigan live. That was the same reason why the Trump campaign sued um, not just to invalidate votes in key battleground states, but often targeted cities, places like Milwaukee uh, and Detroit and Phoenix uh, for these election conspiracies. And I I fear that in some ways we're headed toward a repeat of 2020, where there's going to be disputes over uh, the counting of votes. There could be uh, Republicans that don't accept the outcome of those votes. The, The difference is that there's many, many, many more Republicans running who don't accept the outcome of votes than there were in 2020. I mean, in 2020, Trump was kind of a one-man show challenging the validity of the 2020 election. And now you have all of Trump's acolytes running in 48 of 50 states in the country. So I think the potential uh, for American democracy to face a severe blow is much higher in 2022 than I think it was even in 2020 because so many more election deniers are running for office. We didn't even know what an election denier was in 2020. And now that seems to become be all the rage in the Republican Party at the moment. And Ari Berman, you've written about Wisconsin, which truly is no longer a democratic state. They've gerrymandered that state to the point where the legislature will have such a supermajority that the governor, who's a Democrat, assuming he was re-elected, uh, will absolutely not be able to get anything done. And by the way, the Republican running against the incumbent Democratic governor just said the quiet part out loud a few days ago, if you elect me from now on, Republicans will only win in the state of uh, Wisconsin. So yeah, that's, that's, what, that's that, taking it further than what we're talking about, isn't it? Not, it's not just finding ways to stop Democrats from voting, but this is like accepting the idea of a one-party state. That's fascism. Yeah, I mean, that's why I wrote about Wisconsin, because people are asking, you know, what could happen to democracy? And I think Wisconsin is a microcosm of what's already happening um, to democracy. You already have a heavily gerrymandered legislature there that has basically undermined the will of the people. They've made it so that popular policies don't become law. Um, If they get a supermajority in the legislature, which they need five seats in the assembly and one in the state senate to get the supermajority, they'll have full control of the state, uh, even if uh, the Democratic governor, Tony Evers, gets reelected, obviously, if the Republican governor wins, they're going to have one party control regardless. And they've basically pledged that 
they'll control the state forever. We'll see if that actually happens. Um, but I think it's very clear here they want to take over the voting system. They want to take over how elections are run. They want to use their control of the legislature to take control of the whole state and basically eviscerate checks and balances. Uh, and I think that's a very, very scary prospect when you essentially have a 50-50 swing state that's entirely controlled by one party and not just being controlled by one party, but being controlled by an extreme anti-democratic party. And that very likely could happen um, in Wisconsin. It's not the only state where it could happen, but I think it's it's it, it makes sense to people that you know Democrats might have full control of a place like California, Republicans might have full control of a place like Texas, but why in a place like Wisconsin that's so evenly divided would Republicans have such huge numbers in the legislature and be on verge of taking over the politics of the other state? Um, that's not that's the part that doesn't really make sense. So, Ari Berman, let's look at Georgia. Uh, my understanding is that I think it was it SB two fifty two. I'm not sure what the bill that Governor Kemp put through. SB two hundred two. Two hundred two. Yeah. So it's in place, and it looks as though, in order to get around those restrictions, a lot of people are voting and have been voting early. But that's just making up for what's essentially voter suppression, isn't it? Not. Exactly. Well, basically what SB 202 did in Georgia was it made it much more difficult to vote by mail, um, but it didn't change early voting. They had tried to cut early voting and it was so unpopular, they actually had to relent on that. Georgia Republicans did. And so basically a lot of people who voted by mail in 2020 have shifted to voting early. We don't know how many people, though, didn't do that because – they needed to vote by mail for one reason or another, and they were uncomfortable voting early. But the vote by mail numbers are way down. Um, the early voting numbers are up relative to 2018. So the good news is there has been high turnout. The bad news is that high turnout has been spun to argue that voter suppression doesn't exist in Georgia, uh, even though mail ballots are down, even though there's another provision of that law that allows an unlimited number of challenges to voter eligibility. So 65,000 people have had their eligibility challenged in Georgia. Most of those were dismissed at the county level, but it's led to a lot of confusion and intimidation. I did talk to some voters that showed up and were told they were challenged and they, they were not going to be able to vote regular ballot. Um, and that was very confusing and alarming and upsetting to them. And in some cases, they were able to work this out by talking to election supervisors. Um, but I think voting there is taking place under a very uncertain system. And it could once again be a, a very close margins, particularly in the U.S. Senate race between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. So you're talking about, you know, if if a small number of ballots are thrown out, if a small number of people who voted in 2020 don't come back, that could be enough to determine the election outcome in a place like that. Well, already in Cobb County, didn't they find out just a few days ago that over a thousand people didn't get their mail-in ballots? And... Yeah. I mean, we don't know if that's because of SB 202 or that was just incompetence at the local level. But either way, yeah, about a thousand people didn't get absentee ballots they requested. And again, we don't know how many of those people decided to then just vote in person because they didn't get their ballots or how many people just aren't going to vote altogether because they needed to vote by mail for one reason or another. So what's your sense then of, uh, of what's going to be happening tomorrow? Do you think people who want to vote Democratic will vote? And I guess the key question is, will they come out? I mean, there's been a desperate effort. Uh, they've deployed Obama at the last minute, and he's been incredibly effective. But what's your sense since you've been traveling around the country? Well, uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of different issues. Um, there's the fact that there's people that 
vote in presidential years that don't vote in midterm elections, generally speaking. And those voters are more likely to be Democrats than Republicans because Democrats have more low propensity voters. And so midterm elections are just difficult for Democrats in general, absent a major motivating wave like in 2018 with the Trump presidency. So I think midterms are always hard. It's always hard. The first midterm in a president's term is usually always kind of a disaster. We saw that with Obama in 2010, saw that with Trump in 2018. All the fundamentals would point towards a big Republican night. Um, that said, you know there are different things that are motivating Democrats. Some In some places, like in Wisconsin, they're very motivated uh, by reproductive rights. There's also They're also motivated in some places by the election deniers that are running. We don't know how much reports of voter intimidation, for example, reports of people showing up uh, in you know tactical gear and guarding drop boxes in Arizona, how much that's going to keep people um, from the polls. So I mean, there's sort of two questions. There's will people who want to vote have their votes counted or show up? And then there's a the question of will people just show up in general? Because we know no matter what happens in selection, about half of Americans or more are probably just going to sit it out. So um, for all the talk about who is voting in this election or who wants to vote in the election, a lot of people just for one reason or another are not going to vote because they don't pay attention to all of the intricacies of state politics. And I think that's unfortunate. One thing America does that a lot of other countries don't do is we hold very frequent elections. So I mean, I don't want to say that it's good for democracy to have fewer elections, but I think there is some argument that putting all the major elections in the same year of the presidency would lead to higher turnout and more engagement. Well, it is extraordinary, though, that so many people aren't voting and there's this sense of urgency and that this may be your last chance to vote before your vote becomes meaningless if all these election deniers get, or even a fraction of them get elected. So there's so much at stake. So have you figured it out why there is this gap between the urgency of the moment and the passivity of the uh, big chunk of the electorate? Well, I think people are just burnt out. I think they're burnt out by politics. I think they're they're burnt out by uh, the pandemic. And I think a lot of people just want um, things to go back to normal. They're mad about a lot of different things. They're mad about gas prices. They're mad about uh, housing costs. Um, they just want to tune it out. I mean, I can tell you, you know, I live uh, now in a more swing region of New York State. So I get a lot of the same ads that a swing voter would get if they lived in a place like Pennsylvania or Wisconsin. And it's 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 a lot. Um, and people are just tired of politics. And a lot of people think that both parties are corrupt. They think the system is broken. They don't think it matters who gets elected or who wins. I don't think that's true, but I think there's a lot, that's a perception of a lot of people. Um, and, you know, you keep hearing, you know, vote, vote, vote every every two years, every four years, things will change and they feel like nothing's really changing. Um, so why bother? And so I think that um, that that is something that uh, is a problem. And also, you know, Democrats are talking about democracy, but democracy is an abstract thing for a lot of people. Um, and a lot of, you know, warning about overturning an election um, isn't going to be front of your mind if you're struggling to pay the bills. And so I think what Democrats have to do and what they have not, in my opinion, done effectively is connect democracy to all the other issues that people are caring about. Because Biden is basically saying inflation is important, the economy is important, all these things are important, but democracy is also important. Well, I think what you need to do is show how democracy is connected to all of these other things that people do care about. Like in Wisconsin, where, de where democracy is so rigged, they don't have Medicaid expansion. They don't have more school funding. They don't have background checks for guns. They have an 1849 abortion ban because the state is so heavily gerrymandered. So I think people need to see the connection between democracy and all of the other issues that they care about. Um, and sometimes they see them, sometimes they don't. But I think a lot of people are just tuning politics out at this point in time. So just in the last couple of minutes then, uh, Ari Berman, 
there's an expectation that the voting will the count will take a long time Wednesday Thursday who knows how long before we know because it's going to be close and there'll be the beginning there'll be the red mirage and then later on the democrats might catch up and this concern about violence and if the democrats win uh, there'll be a, a retribution from armed and angry republicans and it's it's an ugly picture but why is it, for example, that Brazil managed to count 120 million votes in about four <laughs> hours last Sunday? And here yeah. we are expecting a train wreck for the next few days. Good question. I mean, I'm not an expert on Brazil's system, so I couldn't tell you why Brazil counted it so quickly, but I can tell you why places in America won't count them so quickly. In some cases, it's because people are, are given more time to vote. Like if mail ballots are dated by election day, they can arrive after in places like California. So that just means that it's going to take longer time to vote. But it's also, in some cases, the laws don't allow to pre-process ballots in places like Wisconsin and in Pennsylvania and in Michigan. I think they only have a day before to do it. And so that leads to more conspiracy theories because uh, if ballots arrive later, uh, people aren't allowed to count them. And so it, it just doesn't make a whole lot of sense that after going through all of this in 2020 and having to explain the red mirage to everyone and trying to explain to everyone that it was going to take three, four, five days to be able to count votes, that we're back in the same position in 2022. It's extremely frustrating that we're having these same conversations of it's going to take time. It's not a conspiracy if votes are kind of later. There's no kind of vote dumps coming from Milwaukee or Detroit or Phoenix. Um, but I think Republicans want this kind of situation because they want to be able to be ahead and declare victory or they want to spread conspiracies about votes being counted later if it doesn't go their way. And so I think they intentionally didn't agree to ballots being counted earlier because they believe it'll benefit them either in practice or in terms of bolstering their bogus fraud claims. So just in closing, Ari Berman, do you expect some violence? Uh, I hope not. I mean, I, I hope that the, the, the voter intimidation we've seen is enough for people to take this kind of stuff really seriously. So I, I hope not. I'm, I'm not going to predict it, and I hope it doesn't happen. Well, I thank you for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Ian. And again, I'll be speaking with Ari Berman, who's a senior reporter at Mother Jones covering voting rights and a reporting fellow at the Nation Institute. His latest book is Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. And he has an article at Mother Jones, Democracy is Hanging by a Thread in Wisconsin, Blame Extreme Voting Maps. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking further into the electoral landscape ahead of tomorrow's critical midterm elections in which the fate of American democracy is not on the ballot but looms over this most consequential contest, even if it's not on most voters' minds. Wash your choice. Wash your choice. Tell me who do you love? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dr. Michael McDonald, a professor of political science at the University of Florida. He is a principal investigator on the Public Mapping Project, a project to encourage public participation in redistricting, and also is the director of the United States Election Project. His new book is From Pandemic to Insurrection, Voting in the 2020 U.S. Presidential Election. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Michael McDonald. 
Well, good to be with you again. Well, thanks for joining us, Michael. And you are the subject of an interview at CNN, which is uh, titled What Early Voting Data Can and Cannot Tell Us. And what's pointed out in this interview is, of course, that the 2018 midterm election was a record. The voter turnout in that midterm election was the highest in 100 years. But, of course, that was eclipsed in 2020 by a presidential election in which 67% of of eligible voters uh, cast ballots in spite of a COVID pandemic at the same time. So I guess there's no way in the world we're going to have a 2020 record, but how do you think Tuesday is shaping up in terms of the 2018 record? Well, as we look across the states at the moment, we're seeing uneven levels of participation in the early vote, and that may foretell a um, likewise an uneven participation in the midterm election. And if I were to guess what is the major difference between 2018 and 2020 and 2022, it's Donald Trump. Uh, in 2018, the election was very much about Donald Trump. And not only was he uh, activating Democrats to vote against him, but he was also activating his supporters to come out in support of him. And the 2020 election then was much more you know, about Donald Trump because he was literally on the ballot. So without Donald Trump being on the ballot now, um, his influence has waned somewhat in terms of the um, motivations that people have on who they're going to vote for in the midterm election. Uh, it's still, though, if you, as we look across some of these states, um, the pace of early voting is um, equal to or exceeding uh, the 2018 turnout. So um, it's possible that we'll see in some states uh, levels that were very similar to 2018 and to the turnout. But I think in other places where there aren't those marquee elections, places where um, there's less motivation for the voters to show up to vote, um, you're going to see a lower turnout than you saw in 2018. And uh, so I think overall, we're probably looking at a turnout rate somewhere around 45% of those eligible, which is still not bad for a modern election. Um, over the last 50 years, midterm turnout rates have been around 40%. So a 45% is pretty good. It's just not as good as the 50% that we had in 2018. Well, obviously, the tradition, if you will, is that people tend to vote against the incumbent in the presidency. And we clearly have voters that are both enraged and engaged, as you say in your interview at CNN. And of course, the question is, are they sufficiently engaged uh, on the Democratic side to vote? We know that they're sufficiently enraged on the Republican side to vote. That's a pretty safe bet, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I mean, typically a midterm election is a referendum on the party who controls the presidency. And for whatever reason, that goes all the way down to dog catcher. <laughs> I mean, people who have nothing to do with the, the policies of the uh, president's party, they uh, suffer, uh, if you will, um, whatever the fate is of the um, referendum on the president. Um but I think this election is uh, I mean, there's always elections that sort of buck that trend. And I think this 
election is indicative of that as well. Um, we're seeing some very close Senate races and um, some gubernatorial elections as well. And um, those states, you know, places like Pennsylvania, Georgia, Wisconsin, um, Arizona, Nevada, you know, and, and Ohio, and I, you know, the sort of usual suspects. I mean, there's a couple other places where um, there's still act, uh, interest, like in Texas, uh, had an early vote that was actually higher than the 26 18 um, early vote. But um, so there may be some gubernatorial elections that are also stimulating people. And, and so it's possible that in those states where there's um, some local inf- yeah, race that is engaging people, that people will be motivated to vote. And we're certainly seeing it in the early vote. I mean, like Georgia um, has had 2.5 million people vote so far. That's uh, half of, of the total turnout that we saw in 2018 uh, and certainly a record in a midterm election. So we're certainly seeing high levels of engagement. And if you look at the polls, you'll see that in those places where I just mentioned, there's a disconnect between Biden approval and vote choice. And so even though people may disapprove of Biden's job performance, um, they're still voting for the Democratic candidate in uh, those states. And that's what makes this a you know somewhat of an unusual election that um, nationally there's this uh, mood against the incumbent party. But within some key states, there's not. And this can explain why we may see a split outcome on the uh, uh, control of the Congress. We may see the Republicans gain control of the U.S. House of Representatives, but lose control. Uh, the Democrats will retain control, I should say, of the Senate. Um, and if it does, if that house, everything plays out, it will because of, likely be because of this sort of dynamic where um, those key races are motivating people in a way that's different than the rest of the country. But in your CNN interview, Michael McDonald, you say if Democrats do lose the House, it will likely be at least partially because their voters just didn't find yeah. a reason to vote in a state like California. You could also add New York, right? I mean, it's amazing to think that in New York, which is heavily Democratic, that the Republicans are, are competitive in some races. Yeah, I mean, that's I, that's the irony, I guess, for the Democratic Party is that they were able to motivate their voters on some of these high profile races. But they um, were not able to do that. And we'll, we'll have to see. I mean, we're still a day or two away. At least the polling and the early voting numbers suggest that they weren't able to do that to the same degree in places that weren't pulling people out of the top of the ticket. Um, and it's hard uh, to break through and inform people about those local elections, even though in some ways um, those local elections have more meaning for people's everyday lives. And I'm not just talking about House of Representatives or Senate. I'm talking about your local um, government is very important, but people tend not to vote in it. Um, so, uh, you know, that's the irony is that even though um, I think a number of people are going to uh, find out in, over the next couple of years that because they chose not to vote, um, they didn't really get an outcome that they were expecting. And um, they may uh, regret the fact that they didn't participate. Um, but again, without some 
stimulus, some, uh, you know, uh, news. And, and we've seen the dearth of local news now um, across the country. And without that information for uh, people to learn about what's going on in their communities, um, uh, it's hard for them to become informed. And, uh, and so we're left with national media, which focuses on these personalities and these key races and, um, and that sucks up all the oxygen in the room for all these local and state races that may be actually very important to people's lives and futures. So I heard a rumor that uh, Trump was going to announce on Sunday in Florida that he was running for the presidency. Uh, he's been teasing it already in a rally in Iowa. Now there's an expectation, at least to reports in the press, that he will announce that he's running on November the 14th, which is the day that he's supposed to show up to testify after being subpoenaed by the House January 6th Committee. And, of course, unlikely that he will show. So given uh, that Florida is such an important state and that's where you are, what's happening there? Because the Republicans are winning in the early vote. At CNN, you mentioned that Registered Republicans have almost 180,000 vote advantage in both mail ballots and in-person voting. Now, already, I think the registration of Republicans is is over 5 million, and registration in the state of Florida for Democrats is a little under 5 million. There's some suggestions that the the head of the Democratic Party in Florida, Manny Diaz, is not up to the job. What's the explanation for why the Republicans are doing so well in Florida? Well, we have a governor who is likely going to be running against Trump for the Republican nomination. And he's a bit of a media darling. So um, he does not get the same level of scrutiny, I think, as some other uh, candidates do. And uh, so he gets largely a pass. And we don't hear uh, to the same degree about um, some of the policies that uh, he's done that may outrage people. Um, so I think there's part of that, but more importantly than that part of uh, that component of what's going on, DeSantis, Governor DeSantis has raised a hundred million dollars. Um, and, you know, so he's got eye popping numbers. Uh, his opponent, Charlie Chris has run before and has failed to, to win in the state. So, um, he was not the strongest candidate to run against DeSantis and DeSantis as a juggernaut war chest. And, um, you know, so incumbent governor, tons of money that he can throw around a, a weak opponent, um, and, uh, an overall mood that, you know, without the sort of like what's happening in neighboring Georgia, where we actually have a competitive race, um, we just don't have that uh, sort of spotlight and attention being paid upon uh, DeSantis as, uh, as, as Herschel Walker. And, you know, maybe that's personality driven. Uh, you know, lots of people compare DeSantis to Trump and his policies, but they say he's just more low key on it. And um, so it's a sort of more palatable fascism that you <laughs> might uh, enjoy if you're a Republican. So, um you know that that could be what's at play here is that the media just haven't found a uh, a reason um, to uh, really go after him in the same way they uh, have shed you know, put spotlights on some of the other Republican candidates. Uh, it'll be interesting to see though in the next year 
if DeSantis really does decide to run for president. Um, and I certainly think that there are a number of big Republican donors who are betting on him. Um, that uh, what happens with Trump? Um, and you know, there were, over the last couple of weeks, there have been inklings of a few uh, finally breaking out, breaking out to the public. Neither one will really mention the other one. And uh, Trump decided not to do a, fun, uh, a rally in Florida and invite DeSantis. You know, so it, it's starting to come public. Um, kind of surprised it hasn't happened before now. Uh, but certainly, I think uh, if they are going to be rivals for the Republican nomination, um, those elbows are going to get a little bit sharper, and, and um, they're going to have to start throwing some punches at one another. Um, and we'll just have to see how that all plays out. If um, uh, if the if DeSantis can continue to look to be above the fray and um, um, look to be a kinder version of uh, Trump, um, we'll have to see if he's able to thread that needle. Well, the theory that why Trump is going to announce he's running early is because, one, there's an expectation that the Justice Department might indict him and he would get some protection, at least he thinks he'll get some protection, being a candidate. And the other reason, I mean, apart from the fact that it'll be the big grift and all the money he'll be raising can go right into his pocket, the other reason is that it stymies or stops uh, DeSantis in his tracks, doesn't it? I don't think it does on the last one, uh, because if Trump really is um, under indictment and, um, you know, and, and those investigations move forward, uh, you know, there, there are lots of scenarios there. It's hard to really predict what's going to happen, but you would think that um, some of the Republican base will rally to Trump as they will, but others will believe that he's damaged goods for the general election and they'll want to look for another candidate. And, um, uh, and right now that candidate is, uh, DeSantis. So, um, we'll just have to see, like, you know, how does that all evolve and play out, um, in, uh, the coming year? I, I can't talk about what's Trump's motivations for like declaring early in terms of trying to shield himself. Um, from investigations, uh, um, you know, certainly he'll file a lawsuit and he'll try to um, take it to the Supreme Court and just uh, slow walk everything. That's his style on um, everything. And you know, if the Republicans, Republicans gain control of the House, um, that January 6th committee um, could evaporate uh, by the time he files his additional lawsuits and. Um, seeks his protection so um you know it, it could it may be a, a viable strategy for him to tr to seek delay and throw the you know mud into the water so that uh um it's difficult to uh, move forward on some other investigations very quickly sure but i think you can safely predict that if he does announce he's running he'll definitely attack DeSantis if he tries to run i mean that's who he is it's, a, it's all about him and already at a rally, Trump couldn't restrain himself, and he called uh, Ron DeSantis Ron DeSanctimonious. But just in closing, uh, in the last minute here, Dr. Michael McDonald, you mentioned Charlie Crisp being, not being a good candidate. What is the explanation for some of the Democratic candidates? The guy in uh, running for the Senate in Wisconsin has proven to be incredibly weak. 
and because Fetterman had a stroke which didn't help him in a really key race. And on Saturday, he had two presidents, Obama and and Biden, campaigning for him on the stump. So Katie Hobbs in running for the governorship in Arizona is doing poorly. And the Democrats actually put money into her opponent's race, Carrie Lake, thinking that she would be a crazy Republican who would never get elected, and she's doing incredibly well. So, and I, this seems like a, a little well, bit. All, of, all of those candidates that you mentioned are running ahead of the um, what we would expect them to be uh, running. So it's a, it's a tough environment um, uh, when you have a very low, low approval rating for an incumbent president. Um, so I, I, at least two of those races, um, the polls are indeterminate. So I wouldn't say like the, you know, either the Fetterman or um, Hobbs are, are necessarily over uh, Barnes. I, you know, that's, he's unfortunately been really attacked on crime and, you know, it's the racist undertones on that. Sure. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, you know, that's been effective, uh, but I can't, I'm not really privy so much to what's going on in Wisconsin to know what it is that's happening there. But I will say that if the Republicans gain a supermajority control of the state legislature, which is a possibility, um, democracy will probably be over in, in Wisconsin. It's almost over now, but um, it, it's very close to failing. Um, many, you know, people when they're rating the level of democracy across the states uh, rank uh, Wisconsin very low because it's a permanent Republican gerrymandered state legislature. And uh, the Supreme Court refused to step in and say that that was unconstitutional. And um, again, the, we can expect that if there's a supermajority control, the governor will be stripped of all of his powers and um, power will be centralized within the legislature. Well, Dr. Michael McDonald, I thank you very much for joining us here today. All right. Good talking with you. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Michael McDonald. He's a professor of political science at the University of Florida. He's the principal investigator on the Public Mapping Project, a project to encourage public participation in redistricting, and is also is the director of the United States Election Project. And his new book is From Pandemic to Insurrection, Voting in the 2020 U.S. Presidential Election. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back talking about the admission by Prigozhin, Putin's cook with the mercenary army of the Wagner Group, who ran a troll farm to help elect Trump that, quote, we interfered, we are interfering, and we will continue to interfere in American elections. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Scott Horton, a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. Welcome to Background Briefing, Scott Horton. Great to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Scott. And over the years, uh, you've followed the Mueller investigation and Russiagate very closely. 
but there's been something of a break in the story today, the influential crony of Putin, so-called Putin chef Yevgeny Prigozhin, who also runs the mercenary group, the Wagner a group that is fighting in Ukraine. And he's actually challenging now the Russian military uh, in a way for power. Maybe he's also positioning himself to be a successor to Putin, at least to enter politics. But Prigozhin was responding to a request to comment on a Bloomberg report saying that Russia was, was interfering in the current elections. And Prigozhin said, gentlemen, we interfered, we are interfering, and we will interfere carefully, precisely, surgically, and the way we do it, the way we can. So that's pretty uh, <laughs> pretty straightforward, isn't it? Finally, the Russian side, this close crony of Putin's admitting that, yeah, we did interfere, we are interfering, and we will continue to interfere. And this is happening a day before this election. So how stupid are we in this country? What's, why did all of that work that Mueller did go nowhere? Why didn't anybody read the report? Why are we so brain dead to the obvious? And here the same man who is clearly a traitor, Donald Trump, is about to announce that he's running for president again. Well, all really good questions, Ian. I mean, I think, uh, of course, it comes as a surprise to no one uh, that uh, Prigozhin uh, ran operations to interfere with the U.S. election that's been reported now for about eight years um, and in considerable detail with breakthroughs uh, from Dutch intelligence, in fact, where they monitored people going into um, his offices. And uh, we had reports by the intelligence committee, uh, by the intelligence community, rather, in um, 2016. Also in uh, 2020, we have a report that was uh, just released by the DNI uh, that got almost no attention by the American media, uh, which made the conclusion that there was a large-scale Russian effort to influence the presidential elections in uh, 2020, and that this was still ongoing. So, of course, it's it's amazing that Prigozhin openly says this, but that's also part of the game that the Kremlin has been playing. In fact, you'll see a number of senior figures around Putin jokingly claiming credit uh, for interference operations, claiming credit for having elected Trump in 2016. And if you follow Russian media regularly, and I do, particularly the 60 Minutes uh, program of, of Vladimir Solovyov, you know that uh, almost every day there is discussion of the American midterm elections and there are claims that this is the path to victory in Ukraine for Russia. The path for victory goes through the American election system. Uh, that the Kremlin's friends, uh, who are um, Republicans, uh, Donald Trump and certain Republicans, will win the midterm elections. Uh, once they have won the midterm elections, they will put a complete kibosh on uh, American assistance, particularly military assistance, uh, to Ukraine. Uh, and after that, it'll be a cakewalk uh, for Russia to win in Ukraine. Um, so all that's out there, it's perfectly clear, and it's getting relatively little attention in the United States. And of course, the other story that really, I think, opens up the real motive behind 
uh, Russia's interference and Putin's interference comes from Jim Rutenberg in the New York Times magazine over this weekend. I'll just quote from the, the article. Six years before Putin's invasion, Kremlin proxies tried to broker a deal with Trump campaign officials to petition Ukraine. Though Russiagate has long been seen as a matter of U.S. politics, it may be more accurately understood as the road to war. And Ruttenberg really does lay out the whole map of what was really behind the Russian interference was particularly using Manafort and this GRU, Russian Military Intelligence Agent Kalimnik, to basically broker this, uh, what they call the Mariupol plan, which is essentially what Putin just did the other day, where he annexed the uh, same territories that back in 2016 they were going to negotiate with the Americans, with the Trump administration, to basically uh, let him take this. And, of course, back in 2016, Ukraine was incredibly weak and internationally isolated, shall we say. So what do you make of uh, this amazing article that really lays out the true story, uh, the main story, which is it's always been about Ukraine. It was never... I mean, they dirtied up Hillary Clinton, they stole her emails, they hurt her, but the real point was to get Trump in power so that he'd go along with Putin's plan to annex uh, the east of Ukraine, the very thing that Putin just recently announced. Well, you know, I think this is a very skillfully done article, um, and it, it really... Um, I've gone over it a couple of times. I don't see anything in it that is news that we didn't know before. But nevertheless, taking all the various pieces we knew before and putting them together in an intelligent, coherent way, we do see how the uh, Putin plan uh, to invade and gain control of Ukraine, or at least large parts of it, was in the backdrop of the entire story that we call Russiagate from the beginning. Uh, and Manafort is right in the middle of it. The Manafort-Kalimnik relationship, as you note, is uh, central to everything. Kalimnik, of course, is a, uh, a, a Russian military intelligence officer, GRU. He clearly was playing a central role in everything. Um, and I think when we go back and we look at things that happen, you know, there are these very key giveaways that occurred that people paid almost no attention to at the time. And the first of those uh, was, I think, at the Republican uh, National Convention, where overnight, through sleight of hand that no one has ever really been able to explain, the Republican platform suddenly changed with respect to Ukraine. Uh, to um, move from being supportive of Ukraine to taking a very hands-off posture, which was exactly what Putin wanted um, uh, of the United States and of American leaders. So that was the first thing. And the second thing was uh, on the eve of uh, Trump's inauguration, this peace plan is put forward. And this peace plan, I mean, where did this come from? I mean, it came from Russian agents uh, and the uh, substance of the peace plan was exactly what Putin wanted um, uh, uh, to achieve in his whole uh, scheme involving uh, Ukraine. Um, so, you know, that really showed um, the power 
that uh, Russian intelligence uh, was exercising over the Trump campaign, uh, and it shows that uh, they had a clear objective in mind, which was Ukraine. It was advancing the Russian position in Ukraine with very specific territorial gains and distancing Ukraine uh, from its allies, the United States and the other members of NATO. And it all started in the Grand Havana Room at the top of um, 665th Avenue, the building owned by Jared Kushner and his family. And there's a whole story about that building as well. And then basically, at the end of the day, Putin did not get out of Trump or out of his presidency what, he th- what he'd paid for. And this is why he's d- decided to go to war, right? Later on, of course, we had the the deep state strike back, if you will, with uh, a number of top officials in the uh, Trump National Security Council going public uh, at hearings, uh, which led to Trump's impeachment about Trump's efforts and through Rudy Giuliani and again, the same Ukraine playbook, which was designed to put the squeeze on Zelensky to get dirt on Biden because, again, this was operation was being run by the Russians, by Kalimnik, as a matter of fact, the same guy, right. put get the dirt on Biden to stop Biden because the Kremlin knew that Biden would be less sympathetic to their uh, aims and their plans over Ukraine than Trump would. So, again, I repeat that Trump, in about a week or so, is going to be uh, announcing he's running for president. So... Scott, tell me that this story makes a difference. I mean, most of it comes, the information comes out of the Mueller report. But who's read the Mueller report? I mean, you've got to admit that Bill Barr did a hell of a good job of marginalizing that report. And and Trump did. Remember, Trump and his cronies have talked about Russiagate, 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 the hoax, etc., when in fact no material evidence was ever presented that there was a hoax here. Uh, even uh, John Durham, who was uh, tasked with shoring this whole counter-narrative up, he brought to prosecutions. Both prosecutions failed spectacularly, and they failed with juries concluding that they believed the defendants and they didn't believe John Durham. Uh, in other words, they uh, were more inclined to believe uh, Russiagate uh, than this counter-narrative. Um so um, so I think if you look at Ruttenberg and what he's written in his article, it's nothing really new. He's put it together very, um, uh, very powerfully, I think. But it's all facts that we've known for some time. It's all facts that uh, Trump has tried desperately to refute with no success whatsoever in doing so. In fact, the uh, evidence... Uh, and support of them is incrementally growing all the time. And the core of the problem here, the reason uh, Putin reaches ultimately to an invasion to accomplish his ends, that has to do principally with uh, Putin's success, actually, in other fields. He was trying to achieve what he wanted through domestic political manipulation in Ukraine, uh, and he was successful in doing that frequently. Um, but then when he seized Crimea uh, and a large part of the Donbass, that changed the electoral balance within Crimea, so a country uh, within Ukraine. So a country that was once on the tip of a knife between pro and anti-Russian interests flipped and really became clearly 
anti-Russian, and Zelensky uh, is the token of that. So Putin had to adopt an entirely different tactic, which was a military invasion. Um, and that's still ongoing. And I think the um, the side tactic, in addition to the military invasion, was to uh, stop uh, Western support for Ukraine. Uh, and he's done that with allies uh, throughout the NATO countries, but in the United States, particularly with allies uh, in the Republican Party. And I think we see the shift going on. So the Republican Party, which was criticizing Biden for not doing enough for Ukraine, uh, now suddenly is flipping and is criticizing Biden for wasting too much money in Ukraine. Uh, and I think we see with Kevin McCarthy's platform uh, and statements by key Republican senators and congressmen that it is likely that if the Republicans uh, take control of Congress uh, following the midterm elections, they will use uh, their position to block support uh, for the Ukrainian military, um, or at least ratchet it down. And that would be a huge win uh, for Vladimir Putin. Well, even uh, when Zelensky came to power, he wanted to make a peace deal, even though they understood that the Minsk Accords were devastating and would cripple Ukraine's ability to have autonomy because basically, you know, the whole point of the Minsk Agreement was to give um, Putin veto power over Ukraine, and that's what he's always wanted. He always wanted to be able to control it on the cheap. But on the American side, of course, going back to the Mueller report, they were about to give Manafort a deal. And when Andrew Weissman, who was the number two on that uh, on the Mueller report, scuttled the deal because he just found out about, once he got the information about the meeting between Manafort and Kalimnik and all the exchange of emails, Weissman suddenly realized that that was what the real story was about, that the Mariupol plan, this petitioning, of eastern Ukraine was the quid pro quo that Putin wanted. In other words, that's why they were helping the Trump campaign. But again, having had that realization on the part of Weissman, who's on MSNBC all the time, how is it that they can't somehow get the American public and the press to pay attention to the Mueller report, which apparently nobody's ever read? Yeah, that's a fundamental problem, I, I think. Um, and in fact, I think a failure to, re to reach deep and understand the entire game that's going on, uh, it seems to me there are only a handful of political figures in Washington who are doing that today. Um, uh, and, I, and I think it's a problem for us. And I think in this election right now, um, you know, we really don't. I mean, we have J.D. Vance in Ohio saying he doesn't he really doesn't give a damn about what happens to Ukraine and the Ukrainians. And it's a waste of money. And, you know, this statement hardly captures the imagination of anyone and doesn't figure as a, uh, a serious issue in that campaign. And I think we've seen similar things in district after district around the country. Um, so I think there are very, very few people who are putting together all the dots. And if they do, they'll immediately be denounced as partisan Democrats and followers of Hillary Clinton. Um, so <laughs> the the counter narrative that, that uh, Trump and his team have put together is really unimpressive and unpersuasive. 
Um, but nevertheless, it's enough for Trump followers. Well, it is shocking, and I, for the life of me, don't understand McCarthy and the Republicans. What is there about Putin? That, why do they want to help this guy? It's so obvious that he's literally trying to murder a country before our eyes, attacking civilians and civilian infrastructure. The, the brutality of this man is unbelievable, and the idea that you want to reward him, which will then make a permanent destabilization of Europe, because if he gets away with murder, literally, he's going to uh, cause more trouble. I mean, I, I just for the life of me don't understand at this moment, why would they do this? Kevin, Kevin McCarthy, remember, um, in, in 2016, he said at a Republican uh, caucus meeting that he believed Trump was taking money from the Russians. Right. Um, I, and this I is swear to God, he said, I swear to God that Trump and Congressman Rohrabacher are on Putin's payroll. Yes. And uh, so I think that that reflects what he honestly believed at the time. And there was quite a bit of evidence for that and still is. There's quite a bit of evidence. Hmm. Um, and nevertheless, that doesn't seem to matter to him. Uh, so uh, you're looking at a party whose leadership are totally nihilistic at this point, who really don't seem to embrace many values of any kind, and who seem prepared to throw out what is basically 50 years of bipartisan uh, foreign policy, just throw it out the window uh, and reject it uh, and embrace uh, the influence of someone who transparently does not have the best interests of America at heart. If you go through and, and read Putin's speeches, <laughs> putting it mildly, <laughs> the United States, it's it's uh, it's horrifying. Um, yeah, he thinks that Americans are mongrels and a sort of inferior species of human being um, who need to be repressed, right? So why would you align yourself with someone who says such things and then acts in a way to reflect that he believes it? I don't know. Um, so it's enough to definitely suspect uh, corrupt influence in the background. I assume that that's all about money at the end of the day. And that's, of course, what Trump's all about. And it's Russian money we're talking about. Uh, I thank you for joining us, Scott Horton. Great pleasure to be with you. And again, I'm speaking with Scott Horton, who's a professor at Columbia Law School and a contributing editor at Harper's in Legal Affairs and National Security. He serves on the American branch of the International Law Association and has represented a variety of journalists and whistleblowers. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. 
Bye for now. One more light goes on